This episode of iTreats is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to ifreakshow.com slash codeschool. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 74 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hi, from Los Angeles. Alondo Barrington. Hello, from North Carolina. Pete Hodgson. Hello, from San Francisco. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Josh Brown. Hello, from Indianapolis. Indianapolis, huh? Yeah. My family's here, so that's what brought me here. Ah, uh, makes sense. I've actually been to Indiana once. Anyway, so we brought you on today to talk about teaching other people to build iOS apps and teaching Swift. I'm assuming mm-hmm. you have some experience with that. Some, but not a whole lot, as I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> so you want to give us a brief introduction of who you are and what you're about? Sure. Again, I'm Josh Brown. I've been doing iOS development for almost five years now. And most of that with Objective-C, as I'm sure you know. I've been doing Swift since it came out. When they announced it at WWDC, I was just really excited about this new language to go out and learn and teach other people. But yeah, I guess that's me in a nutshell. Awesome. So have you been teaching other people to build iOS? So I've been teaching people for about a year now. I started teaching one-day workshops here in Indianapolis last August, I believe, and I've taught a few of those locally, and now I've been teaching some online as well. So, yeah, a little over a year of teaching, I guess. Who are the kind of people who sign up for these classes? Are they generally, are they people who are new? I've always wondered this, like, are they people who are new to programming in general, or are they, do they tend to be people who are already experienced in some other technology, but they just want to learn how to build an iPhone app or an iPad app or whatever? Yeah, so it really varies from person to person, as I'm sure you can guess. But we've had people in our classes who are designers or other technology people, but not necessarily developers. And then, of course, we've had a, a whole lot of developers. So the, the vast majority are already, are already developers who just want to learn how to do iOS development and build apps. I guess there must be a different a difference in the way that you teach iOS for someone who already knows how to write software but just not Objective-C or, or Swift or whatever versus someone who's a, you know, doesn't know what a for loop is or doesn't know what a, a variable is. Right. So my classes have mostly been focused on teaching people who already know how to do development. So the designer who came and other people, they came in with the understanding that, you know, this was for developers and uh, we're not going to cover the basics of programming with for gotcha. loops and conditionals and whatnot. Gotcha. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So what is the format is of this? Is this like a, a single day or a multi-day course structure for these for the students? We started teaching half-day workshops and then found that that just wasn't long enough to cover even the very basic 
foundation of iOS development. So that extended into a full day. So now it's full day and they're online. So I just use some online meeting software and we meet online, people join and they can kind of jump in and ask questions. And it's, it's still a live workshop, but it just happens online now. How do you like the online format as opposed to being in person? Does it present challenges? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like technical challenge for challenges for one. Had a lot of technical issues with um, just different meeting software and trying to figure out what works best. But there's also the challenge of not being able to look around the classroom and see, are people getting this? Do they understand? Or am I going way too fast? Or are they bored? Like those sorts of things I can't really get with an online class. So it is definitely more challenging. Are you using yeah. any tools that allow users to sort of like, you know, do the raise, raise their hand function, for instance, inside of a, a certain, uh, meeting software programs allow you to do that? And it's not ideal, but it, it does give you some sort of optional. Although I find that in the past that when I've done those workshops that the students have been a little hesitant to, to do that for fear of interrupting the, the class flow. Yeah. I haven't tried that. What I've done is just told people, like, they're on audio and they can talk, they can jump in at any time and kind of interrupt. And I've told people that, you know, they're free to do that. Some people are comfortable doing that. Others, I think, aren't. So um, it just depends. But, yeah, your that solution sounds like a good one. One of the challenges I've had with trying to do workshops in the past is getting people to have all of the stuff they need on their computers. So, you know, you might need Xcode. <laughs> For example, have you figured out any cunning tricks that you can share uh, to make my life easier in terms of getting everyone set up the same way before the class rather than spending an hour at the beginning of the class kind of futzing around downloading two gigabyte Xcode images? (laughs) What I've done is basically, like I email everyone before the class and tell them all the things that they need to do to get prepared. One is downloading Xcode, another is downloading the meeting software, things like that. So I try to make sure that people know in advance that, you know, you need to have this stuff because we're going to be writing in Xcode right away. So you need to have it downloaded before. And then I also tell people to show up like 15 minutes early so that we can work out any sound issues or technical issues. Or if they have a fast connection, hopefully they can download Xcode in that time, things like that. So... When I've done it with different technologies, I've just ma- made like a, a virtual machine image and just put everything on there to make sure everyone's got the same setup. But it's hard to do that with Macs because you can't, you know, Xcode is not something you can install on a Ubuntu VM, for example. Right. Well, luckily for me teaching iOS, it's basically you just need Xcode installed. That's the only real thing environment set up. So it's not, you know, it's just one thing to install at least. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, what kind of backgrounds do you get then? If you're looking for people who are developers, you know, do you get web developers? Do you get desktop developers, backend developers, utility, Linux utilities developers, embedded systems developers? I mean, there are all kinds of people, right? Right. So mostly it's been web developers and like backend developers. So people who have backgrounds in Java, C Sharp, Ruby on Rails, JavaScript, those are the kind of the big groups of people that come to these workshops. And how proficient can you get in a single day of training? Well, so we start kind of with the basics, of course, and we build an app that does networking, JSON, table views. We talk about view controllers and the app delegate and the application lifestyle lifecycle 
so there's a good bit of like foundation stuff that you just need to know for pretty much every app. So that's what we cover. Gotcha. I'm curious to know what the motivations for these people are mostly. Why why are they interested in in starting iOS development as opposed to whatever it is that they do normally? Um, is there a broad range? Do you see a lot of people that are kind of getting into it because they're doing enterprise development or they want to strike it big in the app store? What do you find? Yeah. Yeah, so those two things, I think, basically. One is people who want a new job. They're bored with what they're doing for one reason or another. They want to get out of it. They want to go do iOS apps for their job. And the other type of person is the type who wants to strike it rich on the app store or just, you know, build an app. Sometimes they just want to build it as a side project, as a hobby. And so they take the class and and learn kind of the basics so that they can go build their side project. So it's a little bit of both. Okay, I guess that's to be expected. I, want, I wonder, though, because I think, I think there are a lot of people, of course, with no knowledge of the market that have unrealistic expectations. Like, you build a decent app and now, you'll, now you're rich. But hopefully right. real developers don't have that delusion. Yeah. Or they're already rich. <laughs> yeah. Or, <that. laughs> or they've had the delusion and have since lost it. Right. So where, where do you find that people struggle if they're not already an iOS developer? So I think part of it is the frameworks. There are tons of them, and probably a lot of us take those for granted. Like we know, you know, UIKit for the most part, and we know some of the other frameworks, Foundation, etc. But people who are just getting started, like, don't know anything about UIKit. They don't know the view controller lifecycle, the view did load, view will appear, view did appear, all these methods, and so people get overwhelmed really quickly with those sorts of things that, again, like those of us who've been doing this for a while just sort of take those for granted and think they're easy. But Brain so did overload. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's mostly the frameworks that people find difficult. Nobody likes Objective-C who takes my classes. They all hate it and wish that, you know, they didn't have to do it. And now with Swift, they don't. But really what takes the longest to learn for people is those frameworks, all the Cocoa Touch frameworks. Have you found that like the access to the playgrounds in Swift make have, have they made the learning curve a little bit uh, less steep? I think for learning Swift, the language they have, but I think a lot of people don't use the playgrounds for learning the frameworks, learning the UI view controller lifecycle and things like that. I think for the most part, people to learn those people need to build apps, um, even if they're just basic simple apps. And in your experience, that's is that most of the challenges or most of the work is in learning the frameworks rather than learning the language itself, be it Swift or Objective-C? Yeah, I think so. I, I really think there are just so many frameworks, so many APIs in Cocoa Touch that that's what people struggle with the most. And people can pick up the language pretty quickly and easily at first and write some actual code, but then they don't know where to put it. And so that's where people struggle. I'm interested in if, since you, you, you've been teaching people this stuff with Swift rather than Objective-C, have you noticed that there's a problem with kind of the mismatch between the APIs and the language? Because it feels like, you know, ov- I mean, obviously all of the Cocoa APIs were built for an Objective-C language, and so they, they don't line up particularly well with, with right. Swift as a language. Is that a challenge for new people coming to the to the ecosystem where they kind of there's this this cognitive distance between the swift style of programming and the objective c apis 
Yeah, I definitely think so. And one of the big ones is optionals. People just don't, especially people who haven't used optionals in another language before, just don't really get like, what does this exclamation point mean? What, why do I have to put a question mark here? Things like that. And it seems like you have to do a lot of that when using the Cocoa Touch frameworks with Swift. Yeah, it's kind of a shame because I definitely really like the fact that there's optionals in the language. But the reason for them being valuable is because they push out the null checks to the edge of your system. And then once you've done that null checking, you don't have to do it anymore. But once mm-hmm. with, with all of the APIs also potentially producing nil objects, you, you find yourself having to use optionals everywhere because you haven't, you, you can't push it out just to the boundaries of the system. It's kind of, it's kind of a shame that one of these, this is a really nice feature of the language, but I think a lot of Objective C developers a lot of developers in general are going to get quite frustrated with this feature because it doesn't it actually gets in your way quite a lot while these APIs are still right. nilling. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I guess it will improve over time. But overall has Swift made teaching iOS easier or harder? I think it's made it a lot easier because part of the the workshop that I taught before was just on the objective C syntax and sure I have to teach the Swift syntax now, but the Objective-C syntax is just so weird for people. People call it arcane, and it's just like with the square brackets everywhere. People just really don't get it. The minus and plus signs, the at signs, there's all this strange stuff about Objective-C that other languages don't really have. And Swift, too. Like When you go to Swift, you use dot notation like you've used in other languages, and you use parentheses like to call methods like you've used in other languages. So I think Swift is just a lot more natural to use as far as the syntax goes. Somebody and I were having this discussion over the weekend, and he said he thinks Swift will really help people uh, that are starting out with iOS, that it'll be a, a lot lower barrier to entry to get into it. And I sort of disagreed at first because I think um, what we were talking about earlier that is the, the frameworks are actually the hard thing to learn. But it sounds like you are seeing that just the the syntax differences, which in my mind are sort of superficial, are a pretty big barrier to some people. Yeah, I really think they are. A lot of people complain about those a whole lot. And um, yeah, so I I do think that's a big deal. I think also the blocks, I don't know, I imagine the block syntax is also just really, really hard to wrap your head around. Mm -hmm. Or at least it it is for me. I think trying to, I still can never remember how to write the type signature for a block. I just end up typing in random characters until it compiles. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But that's I, actually I d- most of my development techniques. So. Match on yeah. the keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> Depressed keyboard with face. I, but I feel exactly the same way about the block syntax, and teaching it to people even still hasn't, like, it's still not ingrained in me, and I still have to go look it up with that one site uh, <laughs> I'm sure you know about. But that's not such an issue in Swift. Yeah. Blocks or closures are just much simpler. Um, the syntax is much simpler. I mean, you've got the type inference as well, so you don't have to remember the type signature in a mm-hmm. lot of cases. It's gosh darn blocksyntax.com. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. There's another similar problem that I've seen with people picking up Objective-C in the post-ARC era, which is well, no, sorry, the ARC era, I guess, not the pre-ARC era. There's, like, it feels to me like ARC is this leaky abstraction where 
yes, the, does, it does the release retain stuff for you, but you still need to understand how that release retain mechanism works because of things like blocks and weak holding onto self and all that kind of stuff. Have you, when you're teaching these classes, do you need to spend, have you found that you need to spend time explaining that stuff or stuff or is, or is it, or is it, people can get away with not really understanding what's going on behind the curtain as it were? Yeah, so that's something that we don't really cover in the class because it's okay. just over their head. It's kind of out of scope for the one day. But yeah, definitely something that even I still kind of struggle with myself in development. So so where do you start? Do you start with the language or do you start with the way that iOS works? So we start with Hello World. And just my goal for the class is for people to be engaged right away. So I don't want to start with a lecture about how things work in iOS or anything like that. So we just jump in and write a Hello World app. We drag some labels onto the screen and do some connections to the code and interface builder and things like that. And then we kind of pull back and look at it and talk about, okay, what's going on here? Talk about the app delegate lifecycle and the view controller lifecycle and things like that. And then we kind of go on to building an actual app that pulls JSON from the iTunes API and lists the books and movies, um, the top books and movies and things like that. So that's kind of the, the structure of the class. Yeah, they really think that's a, a great way to keep people engaged and get small wins along the way so they don't feel intimidated. I know a lecture would be pretty daunting on the outset. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be up there lecturing. I want people to be, you know, sitting behind their computers and actually writing code because I think that's the best way to learn it is to actually write it and practice learning how to type this stuff, how to do the syntax and things like that. And so I want people on their keyboards typing as much as possible. So what type of feedback have you gotten? Have you gotten former students that have come back and, and wanted to showcase an app that they've been particularly proud of or just said that you've made it so much easier for them to to pick up uh, iOS development. Yeah, one guy told me, and this was the best feedback I ever got, he said that after building this books and movies app that we do that pulls the data from the iTunes API, he said he felt like he could go out and build any app now because he knows how to do table views, he knows how to parse JSON, and he knows how to do networking. And that lets you, as he said, build a huge number of possible apps because you can do so much with just those few things. That's true. And do you guys talk about the kind of the mechanics of getting stuff into the app store and things that are not going to get you through the review process and that kind of thing? That's another thing that we don't cover, although I've had feedback from people that said they would like to cover that. Um, it's just there's just not enough time in a day sure. to cover that. So that's something that sometimes I've sent out an email afterwards and said, here's how you get into the app store and here's the app review guidelines and things like that. But it's not something that we covered during the one day workshop. Gotcha. Yeah, I can imagine it's a real challenge to figure out what, you know, to pair that down. So there's a lot mm -hmm. of stuff that you can learn about this. So squeezing it into a short period of time would be a challenge. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You definitely damper the excitement of building a new app and you have to deal with provisioning profiles. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's why I don't cover it in the workshop. <laughs> I feel like I could, go for a, I could go to a one-day workshop just explaining provisioning profiles. That would be helpful for me. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Although maybe that wouldn't be enough time to cover it properly. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the challenge is kind of like not spending all the time talking about everything, but at least planting the seed in people's heads so they know you know, like, there's this thing that you're going to have to do before you release, or there's this thing called memory management. Don't worry about it right now, but be aware of it, because at some point you're going to need to kind of come mm -hmm. back to this and, and learn some more. Yeah. 
Have you considered doing like a, a follow-on workshop, kind of like a you know intermediate iOS rather than beginner's iOS? Yeah, I have actually, and I I don't know what topic I would talk about because there are so many. There are so many intermediate things that we could discuss. But one of the things that I do after the workshop is I offer a four-week, I call it an exercise program that people can take, and I send assignments every week at the beginning of the week. They work on them, and then they can come to office hours and ask me questions at the end of the week. So people, at least that way, get a little bit more experience, four more weeks of writing iOS code and building another app and things like that. So it's not it's probably still beginner level, but it's getting closer to the intermediate level there. It sounded like you do some of these in person and some of them online. What are the advantages or disadvantages of doing it one way or the other? The advantage to me of doing it online is that I can reach people anywhere. And I've had people take my classes in California, in Minnesota, and all over the U.S. at least. So that's one big advantage that's great for me because then it's easier for me to sell the tickets and communicate about it and things like that. Doing it in person, I haven't actually done it in person for almost a year now, and I'm not sure that I will again just because it's so hard to reach people locally. I guess I just don't know how to do that, Um, Mm -hmm. and I find it easier to reach people online through my blog posts and things like that, Twitter, etc. So going back to the the Swift aspects of this, have you been seeing a lot of challenges with bugs and with people learning and they don't really know if something's not working because it's a bug or because they're using the language wrong. That's something I noticed when I was I was helping some people learn iOS and Swift at the same time. And it was early on when Xcode was definitely very, very buggy in terms of the Swift support. And there was a lot of cases where something wouldn't compile or something wasn't the syntax wasn't right, but it was really hard for people to understand whether the syntax was wrong or whether the Xcode was just uh, having a freak out. Yeah. I didn't teach Swift in my workshop other than kind of a brief overview, more of a lecture style, until it was out of beta because I didn't want to worry about that sort of thing. And people who are new to this, like you're right, they don't know if they got the syntax wrong, if there's a bug in Xcode or whatever. So I made sure that we're just going to do Objective-C in the workshop until Swift is out of beta. And that helped a little bit with those sorts of issues. But still then people had syntax errors in Objective-C that we had to figure out. So so what kind of questions do you get during your office hours? I'm assuming since the main event is one day, you have a pretty well set, here's what we're going to get through and here's what we're not going to get through. So what do people run into after the fact? The assignments are basically to build a Twitter app. And so as they're going through these, people just don't know, like, where do I go? Where do I look to find how to do this? How do I fetch tweets from Twitter, etc.? They just don't know still kind of where to look for these sorts of things. And sometimes they're able to Google it, sometimes they're not. But those are the things I think people still sort of struggle with, like, where do I go to find good information about how to do X in iOS. That makes sense. So what are, what are some of those resources that you point them towards? Is there some kind of canonical things that you suggest everyone should go to first? Well, I always recommend that people look in the docs, the Apple docs right inside of Xcode, because I found that those 
are really great at explaining what happens when you call a method or how to use a class or things like that. So I always, always, always tell people, go look in the docs first. If you can't find it there, Google's fine. I also like Ray Winderlich's tutorials. Those are really good for doing very specific things and figuring out how to do those. So I send people there as well. I think those are the main things that I recommend. Is there something in Swift that you think they should add or remove to make it easier for a beginner to learn the language? I think you probably have an interesting perspective having seen a lot of people go through that learning curve. Again, I think the thing that I see people struggle with the most is optionals. So I don't know if they can do something about that. But I guess maybe reworking some of the APIs, at least some of the common ones, so that they're easier to call from Swift, maybe rewriting some of those in Swift or just making them, again, easier to call from Swift. I think that would help new people a lot. And so if people didn't have to see all these exclamation points and question marks and, <laughs> and things, then they, I think they'd be better off and be able to jump into it a little more easily, a little more quickly. Interesting. It's a tough bootstrapping problem, I think. That I think, and I already said this, I guess, but I think optionals are a great feature, but it's tough to get people excited about them when they get in your way mm-hmm. at first, when there's, there's right. not those APIs. Mm-hmm. There was a, a tweet that I saw the other day that said, it was about Swift and, you know, someone was stuck. And it said, have you tried adding or removing question marks or exclamation points? Just like you know, just go ahead and try this, you know, try adding them, removing them, maybe it'll work. And I think a lot of beginners, that's kind of what they do. They just, well, this doesn't work, I'll add or remove a question mark or exclamation point. Have you done any teaching of just Swift to people who already do iOS development? A little bit. So I I do some mentoring, some one-on-one mentoring as well. So yeah, I guess I've done a little bit of that too. How is that different from teaching people who are new to iOS development how to do it? So that's easier, again, because they already know the frameworks. The people who have done Objective-C know the Cocoa Touch frameworks. It's just a matter of calling them in a different language. And that people don't really struggle with that. It's There's a little bit of syntax changes and things that people find strange. But again, that's a lot easier for them to get than it is for a new person to pick up all these frameworks. It's actually kind of surprising to me. I, oh, well, I guess it's not surprising overall, including the frameworks, but I had this kind of assumption that it's actually easier for someone who doesn't have the baggage of wanting things to, you know, the, the, the existing mental framework of Objective-C. I kind of assumed mm-hmm. that would actually get in the way of picking up Swift because you kind of just want it to work the way Objective-C works, particularly that stuff around optionals. But right. um, I guess just understanding some of the concepts of blocks and stuff helps you learn Swift. Yeah, absolutely. And like if you know what a block is in Objective-C and maybe you have to go look up the syntax for it, I found that in my, you know, two, three months of doing Swift, I don't have to go look up the block syntax or the closure syntax for Swift. You know, when there's a block, I just, I know how to do it in Swift versus Objective-C. Again, how many years after blocks were introduced, I'm still looking up the syntax. Yeah. Have you had people who are learning Swift and coming in from a different language, have you noticed there's specific languages that people compare it to? Because I've heard a lot of people say kind of Scala or JavaScript or I think Rust was one that kept on coming up for some people. Mm-hmm. Is there, do you see similar kind of analogies or is there other, other analogies people make? Yeah, absolutely. Those come up a lot and especially Scala, I think. 
I did a very little bit of Scala back a couple of years ago, and to me, Swift looks a lot like it. So I think that's a big one, and one that other people have confirmed as well. Yeah, I definitely, by coincidence, having been done a lot of Scala in the last couple of years, it definitely, there's some very familiar parts of Swift. Luckily, it isn't the ridiculously huge language that Scala is. I think we dodged a bit right. on that. Although it would have taken them a lot longer to build it if it had as many <laughs> language features as Scala. All right, so I've got like a dozen questions now. I'm kind of curious about the day-long format and if it can be ad- adapted to some of the technologies that I know a little bit better than iOS that I could do the same kind of thing with. For me, it was just like starting with figuring out like what do people really need to know about iOS in order to build apps. And the first workshop was awful, actually, uh, just because we didn't really know like what to teach people, I guess, what people needed to know about iOS. And so it was basically, hello world, let's drag some controls onto the Go screen, let's alley. hook them up and hook them up. But we didn't, like, I guess part of the issue with it was we didn't end with anything like substantial. People ended with this Hello World app that looked like a Hello World app with controls all over the place and it didn't really do a whole lot. So I think building something practical, at least in my experience, that has been much better than just trying to teach stuff and doing some simple Hello World. Did it take more than one workshop to sort of, you know, ferret that out and figure out what was going to work? Yeah. So after the first one, we kind of rehashed like so for a while I was teaching this with another guy a business partner so he and I after the first one just talked about okay what did people like what did they not like we made sure to ask for feedback and got a lot of feedback from the 10 people who took that first class and so you know based on that feedback and our thoughts we decided to redo it and actually build an app in the class rather than build some hello world I'm kind of curious it doesn't say on here how much it costs mm-hmm it's uh, four ninety nine for the one day workshop, and then there's an additional one fifty for the four week exercise program. Okay, and I guess it makes sense if you're teaching other developers. It seems like half the people I'm talking to have not coded anything ever in their life, and mm-hmm. so yeah, that's so to teach them. True. Like if I wanted to do a Rails course, which is kind of where I'm thinking, I'd have to teach them HTML and CSS and JavaScript and yeah and Ruby, right. Yeah, that's a multiple day thing, it seems like. Yeah. But if I just assumed that they understood the generalities of the web technologies, then I could probably do a day and then do the same structure. Mm-hmm. I might just totally yeah. swipe this. Oh, it is. Rec- okay. It's, it does say it right here. The price is on there. $4.99. Yeah. I want people to read the whole page before they see, like, a lot of people just, like, scan for the price, you know? And yeah. I want people to read the page, what it's all about, before they try to make a decision based on price. Yeah. So how do you market it? How do you get the word out about it? Yeah. So that's the hardest part of teaching, in um, my opinion, at least teaching on my own. So basically, it's all email. I took a class called 30 by 500. Mm -hmm. Um, Amy Hoy. Yep. Okay. So I took that and learned a ton. I mean, it was a really, really great class. And so from that, I learned to well, that's how I came up with that marketing page. That's how I've come up with ideas for things to write about on the blog. Um, and then the blog has drawn more subscribers to my newsletter. And then through the newsletter, you know, every couple months or so, I, you know, send out a few emails and launch this workshop again. 
so that's the main way that I market this. I don't really even try to sell tickets to people on Twitter or anywhere else. It's just all like basically if you're on the mailing list, you can buy a ticket. Otherwise, it's going to be hard for you to find out how to get one. Yeah, Yeah. it's not that I'm trying to exclude people. It's just I've in the previous workshops posting on Twitter and things like that haven't sold any tickets. So I don't find any reason to spend my energy there. I have recorded the boot camp in the past that I teach. And Uh at one point I sold that to people on the mailing list. Um, So if they couldn't make it to the boot camp, they could buy the recording and watch it and kind of learn, you know, the basics that way. Mm -hmm. And I'd almost rather like continue doing that and then, you know, just sell that or even give it away for free, but then teach people like the more intermediate or advanced topics in Mm -hmm. iOS. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot more content or a lot more content out there for beginners. Yeah. Anyway, lots of stuff to brainstorm. We should ask, where do people go to sign up for your course? They can go to roadfiresoftware.com. That's my website. So R-O-A-D-F-I-R-E software.com. And then you can click on the learn iOS link at the top. So wait, what's the origin of Roadfire as a name? (laughs) Great question. So (laughs) I... (laughs) Asphalt burns. Yeah, that's why I had this weird mental image as you... (laughs) It, yeah, it's it sounds strange in English. So it's actually from a Thai word, and the Thai word is rotfai, and it means train. So I lived in Thailand for a year, and I like trains. So I like the word rotfai and sort of translated it into English, or transliterated it, I guess is the word, and it's roadfire. So that's where it comes from. I was so going to say it was Thai. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm having Thai food for lunch in 10 minutes' time. Oh, jealous. But no road fires. <laughs> and road fire, it, it's, I think it's hilarious that roadfire.com was already taken, so you had to use roadfire. Yeah. yeah well, oh, wow, roadfire.com is an awesome website. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Now people are going to go to it and get Rickrolled or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, this is great. This is my pick. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all Pete's fault. All right. Uh, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Pete, do you want to give us some picks? <laughs> <laughs> My first pick is roadfire.com, which is just an awesome internet experience. Things like this. I love living in a connected world, is all I can say. <laughs> I, love, <laughs> I love seeing insights into other cultures that I would otherwise not get if it wasn't for the glory of the World Wide Web. So that's going to be my pick number one is Roadfire. I keep on rebuilding the same application over and over again. It's kind of like my coding kata kind of thing. So BART is the public transit system or one of the public transit systems in the Bay Area. It's a Bay Area rapid transit. It's also known as a subway. And I have just recently built yet another BART, when's my next BART train coming application. And it is nxtbrt.com, next BART, but without any vowels, nxtbrt.com. So uh, in my usual uh, shameless self-promotion style, I'm going to pick that. It's free. It does one thing. Hopefully it does it really well. I mainly would like people to use it and then give me feedback as to what they want it to do other than the very simple things it does right now. And then my uh, my last pick is a food item, freeze-dried ice cream sandwiches. I had these a while ago. I'd never had a freeze-dried ice cream sandwich before. It is a marvel of modern technology, the likes of which I had never had before. 
So if you've never had a freeze-dried ice cream sandwich, I recommend you try a freeze-dried ice cream sandwich. Those are my picks. All right. Alondo, what are your picks? I have two picks this week. Uh, my first pick is a nice tutorial uh, on UI kit dynamics and collection views. Something that came in handy this week, I started implementing one of the, a little bit of UI kit dynamics into an app that I'm currently working on work. And uh, it's a really good as- explanation by Asfero, along with a sample project. And then uh, another project that I'm working on in Meatspace is I just finished with Deck and I'm building patio furniture from pallets. So I found a great tutorial on how to do that as well. Bit of DIY patio furniture and looking forward to getting that done this weekend. So those are my two picks. All right. Andrew, what are your picks? I've got two picks also. I actually was at CocoConf in Las Vegas this past weekend as we record and I had a great time and met a lot of cool new people and even learned a few things from sessions. So I want to pick CocoConf. And I guess more generally pick sort of independent conferences in general. I think there's two kinds of conferences. There's WWDC or Google IO, that kind of thing. And then there are the smaller conferences and they have a completely different feel. And there's a lot of value in going to those smaller conferences. So I highly recommend it. And then my second pick is App Camp for Girls. I think this has probably been picked before on the show, but the founder of App Camp for Girls was at CocoConf and spoke, and I had a chance to talk to her. And they're just doing some really cool stuff, and she's a great person. She's really excited about it, and it got me excited about the things that they're doing. So they're they're only in Portland and Seattle right now, but they're looking to expand and doing cool stuff. So those are my picks. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks. Uh, one is, I don't know how this is going to go over because I'm going to pick another framework for iOS development. It's called Famous, and we talked about it on JavaScript Jabber. The week before, we actually talked about the Ionic framework, which is also another JavaScript framework for building iOS apps. So I'm going to pick both of those. I've also been reading, I read a lot where I listen to a lot of books, and the latest one that I listen to, it's kind of a fun book. I don't take them super seriously, but, you know, it's just kind of an easy listening, interesting story. It's Michael Vay and the Jade Dragon, and there are three books before it, and basically it's teenagers with electrical powers is, is kind of how I describe it. But, you know, it's kind of an interesting and fun story, and so, yeah, I'll pick that as well. And yeah, I think that's all I've got. Josh, what are your picks? Yeah, so I have three picks. The first one is, I know you've had this on the show before, this has been a pick, but Functional Programming in Swift, the book by the team at Objective-C.io. For me, it was just an excellent way to get started with functional programming. I haven't done functional programming before, and so this book was just a really good introduction for me and taught me some of the kind of the basic functional concepts like map, filter, and reduce. So excellent, excellent book. Totally worth the price. Highly recommend that. My next pick is Parsing JSON in Swift. This is an article by Chris Eidhoff, and he talks about how to do strongly typed JSON parsing in Swift. And some of it is still over my head, but it's an excellent article and looks like a great approach to parsing JSON in Swift. And my third pick is error handling in Swift, um, which is another article that I read. And I really like his approach to error handling there. He, instead of returning or passing in an error pointer and things like that and checking that for nil, his functions, he suggests returning a single generic result type that has either a success or a failure in it. And then that makes it easier to handle switching on, you know, success and failure when you get the result back. So really good article there too. And those are my picks. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
that was a fun talk, and uh, hopefully people are getting some ideas on how they can either better learn or better teach iOS. Thank you very much. Working and learn from designers at Amazon and Quora, developers at SoundCloud and Heroku, and entrepreneurs like Patrick Ambron from Brand Yourself. You can level up your design, dev, and promotion skills at Level Up Con, taking place October 8th and 9th in downtown Saratoga Springs, New York. Only two hours by train from New York City, this is the perfect place to enjoy early fall at Oktoberfest while you mingle with industry pioneers in a resort town in upstate New York. Get your ticket today at levelupcon.com. Space is extremely limited for this premium conference experience. Don't delay. Check out levelupcon.com now. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.